0: I have a bone to pick this morning with someone in this place. Ever since I've come here, I've had a real problem with this person. And uh, I, I've dealt with it. I've tried to, tried to work and get past it, and I just can't. So I'm going to have to come clean this morning in front of everybody. I'm really struggling with this. And um, I need to tell you that this morning, I have a real problem with Brian Parrish. It's me with this flesh, this body. It tempts me. It antagonizes me. It accuses me. It's weak. It easily gets into sin. This morning, right now, I don't feel very good. I've got a a sore throat. I've got lots of congestion. And many of you may be there with me. And I am just plain old ticked off with this guy right here. This flesh... Can get me into so much trouble. And so we go to the word of God because if you're honest with me this morning, every single one of you would raise your hand and say, I've got a problem with me. Maybe not Brian, but fill in your, may all of you may say that this morning. Goodness gracious. uh, I'll be in my office afterward. Just start a line and you can have your time with me. This flesh. Is a problem. And so as we go to God's Word, as we go to Paul, as he writes to the Galatians in chapter 5, if you want to turn there in just a second, we're going to read verses 16 through 25. He is speaking about this issue of the Spirit versus the flesh. On the one hand, we have the Spirit of God who dwells in every believer who leads us in righteousness. For his name's sake. Who teaches us, guides us in truth. Works in and through us for God's good pleasure. And on the other hand, we have this body, this flesh. Which as Skip said this morning has been put to death. And yet, the shadow of it still raises up its ugly head. And it battles us every single day. And so Paul implores us in Galatians chapter 5 to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And as you heard me say last week, probably the most important question in all of life is how do I walk by the Spirit? Well, we're going to pick up today where we left off last week in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. In this first sermon of this series entitled, Walk by the Spirit. If you'll stand with me this morning, we'll read together Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. And Paul writes this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Please be seated. Well, I began last week in this three-point message saying that if you walk by the Spirit, you will overcome sin. It's the only foolproof plan for overcoming sin. Well, I want to turn your attention to the second point this week in verse 18. Which is, follow the Spirit and you will please God. Not only will you overcome sin, but if you walk by the Spirit, if you follow Him, you will please God. Look at verse 18 with me again. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Do you see the irony here? The inherent irony in this verse. Who is the Spirit from? He is the Spirit of God, right? Who is the law from? It is the law of God. The Spirit of God from God. The law of God from God. And yet, Paul is saying here that if you follow the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, that doesn't make any sense, God, because they're both from you. How can they be opposed to one another? Well, the irony of the spirit versus law issue is that the law is God's standard for pleasing Him. Remember that. We'll come back to that in just a second. Now, when God gave His law... To his people. Remember they were at Mount Sinai. Moses had led them out of Egypt. They had gone to Mount Sinai. Moses went up to receive the tablets from the Lord. And there at that place, God made a covenant with his people and he gave them his law, which were the expectations of his covenant. And what did the people have to do in order to please God? What was it? They had to obey the commandments, the law. They had to do the law, to follow the law. Well, that's really weird, because here in verse 18, it says that if we follow the Spirit, then we're not under the law. If following God's law is what pleases God, then why does Paul say this? You know, those of us who have grown up in the church and we've read these verses over and over and over, at least a number of times, we just kind of read over them and we just assume so much about them. But what if you were a first time reader or what if you were a racial Jew? Or a religious Jew? And you came across this. The immediate immediate thought might be, so Paul is telling me to disregard the law? Well, that's it. I'm done with this. I'm going to have nothing to do with it. This is why the gospel is such a stumbling block to the Jews. Because it says so much about the law. Well, let's 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 dig a little deeper. What is the law? What is the law? You can answer. It's okay. Does anybody have a a good definition for the law that you feel like sharing this morning? What the Ten Commandments? Okay, that's part of the law. Exactly. Yeah, I, I saw a hand back there. Okay. Everybody gets scared. What's what's that? Okay, the law is something you have to obey to go to Jesus. Okay. In the Old Testament, she's exactly right. The law was something you had to obey in order to come to God. To experience His presence. To approach Him. To have relationship with Him. The law is God's standard. Actually, that's not... Well, it's true, but God's holiness is God's standard and his holiness is represented by the law. The law is the representation of God's holiness, which is God's standard for approaching him and being in right relationship with him. And if, you know, we get the law and we get it in exodus, we get it in Leviticus and we get it in Deuteronomy. Leviticus is almost completely the law, the expectations of God for his people. And it's probably one of the more difficult books of the Bible to read and perhaps one of the most boring. Now, if you're one of those who does, a, does an annual reading plan where you read through the Bible in a year, if you're like me, when you come to Leviticus, oh man, not this book again. I got to read this, God. God, why did you put this in your Bible? Why do you you make me read this? And yet it's God's word, God's holy and perfect word. And we know that for some reason God felt it was very important to add all those details of his law to his word. And the question is, why? Well, I think the weightiness of it, its specificity and complexity, the robustness of it, how it deals with every aspect of the Israelites' lives, the mind-numbing length and detail of it, is so that we don't miss the point of what God is trying to say. I mean, the, Israeli, the Israelites couldn't do even mundane things like sewing their clothes or eating their meal without going to the law first to find out what it said. Because God gave them specific details and regulations, as Bill said, for every aspect of their life. Oh my goodness, it's so big, so hard, so difficult, such a burden. I mean I can't patch my jeans up without looking at your law first to do it just exactly right like you say to do it. God. And God says, that's right. Because my friends, God wants us to feel the weight and complexity of his law so that we understand how impossible it is to perfectly live up to his standards. He wants you to feel overwhelmed this morning by his law. He wants you to say, oh my goodness, it's impossible. It's ridiculous. It's too hard. He wants you to know that man cannot follow the law perfectly. Therefore, he cannot please God. I want you to hear that this morning, my friends. You cannot please God. You need to wear that this morning. You cannot please God. You cannot. It is impossible. His law makes that very clear. Go back and read it. Go back and read Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. The law is an expression of God's holiness. And who of us meets or matches up to God's holiness? The answer is none. No, not one. So now we're starting to get at the heart of what's going on here. What Paul is trying to say in verse 18. Before Christ's atoning work on the cross, the law was what we had to live up to in order to please God. But we couldn't. Man could not be perfect. Therefore, he could not please God. Perfection was what God required. And none of us, no, not one of us could satisfy that requirement. Romans 3, Paul says this, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, do you get the point there? I don't know if there's any other way Paul could say it. No, not one. There is not one. Not any. Not a single one of you. Nobody. Anybody. Uh Uh-uh. No way. I mean, that's what Paul's saying, right? Over and over and over. And here in verse 18, this is what Paul is saying as well. Before the Holy Spirit dwells in you through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith, you are under the expectation and the condemnation of the law. It is your judge and your jury. And my friends, all of us are found guilty under the law. But, through Christ, the law has been satisfied because he satisfied it by his perfect obedience, his righteousness. This is at the heart of the gospel. From beginning to end, in Paul's apostolic ministry, everything is about justification by faith through grace. Or, I'm sorry, by grace through faith. Justification by faith alone. And it's no different here. If you live under the law, you die. If you live by the Spirit, you live. And when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive His righteousness. The right standing that Jesus has before His Father is applied to you if you're in relationship with Him. Following the Spirit means being free from the burden and condemnation of having to live up to the law but never fully being able to. Though you can never please God by doing the law because you can never do it perfectly. You can please God by following His Holy Spirit which is a relationship with His Son Jesus Christ. So you... Cannot please God, but Jesus can. And in relationship with Him, the, the favor that the Father has for the Son is put upon you, so then all of a sudden, God sees you completely differently. This is why it is only by grace through faith, and why it's not by works, why it's not dependent on what you do. It's not, it's not, a thousand times, it's not. It's all dependent on what Christ did and whether you trust Him or not. Whether you accept His righteousness, His right standing with the Father. And it's applied to you. So what does it mean to follow the Spirit? Well, simply put, I think it means to trust Christ with all that we are and with all that we do. The Spirit leads us to die to self and to follow Christ by grace through faith in Christ, we please the Father because the Father is fully pleased in the perfection of His Son. And by faith in Jesus, that pleasure is attributed to us. And therefore, we stand in good standing, in right standing, holy and acceptable to a perfect and holy God. And, and, and you might be sitting out there this morning thinking... I got this. I'm the master of my destiny. I'm going to do this on my own. As Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. Well, the law is there to remind you that your way is futile. The law only leads us to the reality of our own insufficiency. But the spirit leads us to the sufficiency of Jesus. That's why God put it there. That's why it feels like you're walking through mud as you read it. He wants you to feel that way. He wants you to feel the weight and the burden and the impossibility of living all of those things out perfectly. He wants His law to lead you to a recognition to the reality of your own insufficiency to ever please Him. To ever live up to His standards. To ever have a relationship with Him and to be acceptable into His heaven so that you're only left with one option. And what is His name? Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. One more time. Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. My friends, if you follow the Spirit, You will please God. It's the only way you will please God. And you will no longer be judged by what the law says. You will be judged by what his son did. In all of his perfection, in all of his righteousness, and in all of his mercy. And then the last point this morning. The deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit are polar opposites in every way. Now, I said last week that these two are mutually exclusive, and I'm basically saying the same thing again, again this morning. The deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are completely polar opposites. They have nothing to do with one another. You can't have one and have the other. It's an either-or situation. Now, I'm not saying if you, if you sin still, you can't be saved. Please hear me. I'm not saying that this morning. But at any moment in your life, you're either following the Spirit or you, you're being led by the flesh. And it can't be both. It is one or the other. And so what Paul does for us so kindly... Is he reveals to us what the deeds of the flesh are, and then he reveals to us what the fruit of the spirit is. I don't know if you ever watch Magic's Biggest Secrets finally revealed. Did you ever watch that? You had the the creepy looking guy with the um, the Mexican wrestler hat over his face, and he would go through the magic trick and do it, and you oh ah, and you'd be so wowed by them, and they would seem so spectacular and supernatural, and then he would walk you step by step through the illusion, how it works, and you'd say, well, that's simple. That's easy. How did I not, did I not see that all along? And all the, the, uh, the awe of it and the, the mysticalness of it is, is taken away and stripped away, and you see it for what it is. Well, Paul does the same thing for us here in verses 19 through 21, except he's not wearing a mask and there's nothing mystical or, or, or supernatural about these things. They're plain and open. And according to Paul, there's no secret about any of it. The disgusting reality of sin is plain for all to see. Its putrid egotism glaringly shines out so that none of us are confused what it looks like. Any mask that sin wears to try and appear as pleasant quickly fades and sin reveals its ugly identity. And it's our own desires that lead us to sin. And it is horrific what this flesh is capable of. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Dr. Alfred Kinsey. You may have heard of the Kinsey Institute at the Indiana University. Dr. Alfred Kinsey uh, was born in 1894 and lived through 1956. He was an American biologist and a professor of entomology and zoology. In 1947, he founded the institute called the Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction at Indiana University. It's now called the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. And uh, Kinsey's research became very controversial. He began encouraging and participating in his own research. He invited his students the men and women who were in his study groups and those who worked in the institute into his bedroom. He encouraged his staff to engage in relations with others outside of their marriages, to swap wives and husbands and partners. He made what can only be called pornographic films in his home and he called it research. And as he went along. He spiraled further and further into more perverted acts. He got into drugs and other vices, which ultimately led to his death. He overdosed in 1954. Now, in spite of his practices and his reputation, the Kinsey Institute and the Kinsey reports that came out of this research have become very popular and um, is still respected greatly by secular, the secular academic community. But we see the slippery slope of sin. How it started off small, and perhaps in his mind innocent, I don't know. But as he dug deeper and deeper into sin, it drew him further and further down, and it controlled him, it enslaved him, and it ultimately killed him. What started off as an innocent fascination ended up being absolutely fatal. I think someone should write a book. Now I'm going to tell you to do this because I don't want to write a book. But you should write a book. And I think you should entitle it Sin Fascinating but Fatal. Because isn't that how sin is? It starts off as as innocent. It makes all these promises. It's so alluring at first. But we know from Scripture that it's only fun for a season. Hebrews 11, 24 and 25 says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, listen to this, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Or as it says in Job 20, verse 5, The exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless, but for a moment. My friends, sin is sneaky. It makes so many promises. It tells you, I'll give you pleasure. I'll give you influence and power. I'll give you wealth and possessions. But there's always a catch, isn't there? There's always a price to be paid. It's, it's like an ATM. Aren't ATMs great? You just go, you put in a little plastic car and it gives you money. It's like winning the lottery every time you go. And there's no chance, there's no gambling. It's a sure thing, as long as you have money in your account, of course. It's like free money. But it's not, is it? It's not free money. Yeah, it it feels great. You get the money and go out and you buy whatever you want. It's immediate gratification and we love it. But then your bank statement comes in the mail. And you realize there was nothing free about it the whole time. It was debiting from your account it was taking away and if you keep at it if you keep doing it if you keep withdrawing and withdrawing and withdrawing all of a sudden you're poor and penniless you're bankrupt and destitute and you've got nothing left or how about this illustration think of a skydiver Skydivers don 't skydive because it 's boring or because they don 't like it. They skydive because it 's thrilling and and if you like roller coasters, you understand this on a small scale Who, who likes to ride roller coasters yeah it 's great isn 't it and you know and i don 't know what it is you love it and you hate it all at the same time. The first big hill you know click click click, 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 and the whole time you 're going, oh no, oh no, because you know you 're going to get that butterfly effect in your stomach it 's It's going to feel weird and, but you love it. And you keep going back and you keep doing it. Click, 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 slow as can be. And then you hit the top and you know what I'm saying? And we love it. Now I've never, I've never skydived. Um, I'm not that crazy. But those who have, it's a rush because it's that times like a hundred And they're just falling and falling and falling. Now, if you're a skydiver and you jump out of a plane at 5,000 feet, it's a blast. But then you realize you don't have your parachute on. It's still fun though, isn't it? Woo! And for 4,999 feet and 11 inches, it's a lot of fun. But that last inch is kind of a drag. Splat! That's a good picture of sin. It feels really, really good until it doesn't. And then it hurts. And that, that good feeling is so fleeting. It goes away so fast. And it's just so there's no question about what this sin is, what these lusts of the flesh are, Paul spells it out very clearly for us. And so let's just look at these very quickly here. In verses 19 and 21. These are the deeds of the flesh. Now, he says in verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're evident. The word there is phanaros, which comes from the root photos, meaning light or fire in the Greek. Photo, we get the word photo from that. It means light. And so what he says is the acts of the flesh shine out brightly for all to see. They are clear as day if you will just look, just think. And so what are these lusts of the flesh? Well, sexual immorality. Pornea is the Greek word there. We get our word pornography from this. These are actions of immorality. The next word is impurity. That, that deals with actions, but it also includes thoughts, impurity, how we think, how we respond, our attitudes, sensuality. That's the word asalgia. It means anti-moral. And I would define that as unbridled lust, lewdness, no holds bar kind of attitude. This is not just being a bear. It's being a, a grizzly in your sin. No limitations. And that's where this leads to. It starts off small, but it leads to that place. Because your inhibitions go away. The convictions, after a while the Spirit says, you're not going to listen, I'm not going to do it. Idolatry. We know what that is. That's worshiping or serving an image or an object that is not God. And, And we think of putting up an image and having your little candles and 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 alter to it at home but this is anything that you prioritize over god is your idol sorcery pharmakia is the word there it's where we get our word pharmacy it's a greek word for medicine now it didn't mean magic or sorcery but the reference is to the use of chemical agents potions for the practice of magic now i I want us to think about this in our day and age how does this apply to us Well, I think what they were doing is they were using the things that God had created in nature for ungodly practices. Either taking personal credit or ascribing to other deities what God had created and what God had provided for. They were using God's creation for personal gain. I wonder if we're guilty of this. I mean, we can we can look at the big bag pharmaceutical companies and we can throw blame at them and look at what they're doing and, and there's some blame there, definitely. But how do we use technology? Do you have a computer at home? It's great. Computers are great. They allow us to do so much and, and to do it so quickly. And spell checker is awesome for me. But how do you use your computer? Do you spend... A lot of time, maybe waste time on social websites. Do you look at pornography? How do you use the things that God has provided? What about how we use our medical technology? We Two weeks ago, we looked at the sanctity of life and how we use that to, to murder children. What about enmities? This is meaning hostility or giving the reason for opposition. It's causing opposition. Strife, quarreling, or holding a grudge, jealousy—we know what that is. It's not—it's being—it's not being satisfied with what God has given you. That's what it is, and wanting what someone else has. Outbursts of anger, a loss of temper—that's what that means. Dispute, stirring up strife, provoking dissension, and the next word is dissensions. Literally, two positions, divisions, disunion, disjointed, a church that is. Is at each other. Or individuals in the church that are at each other. Factions. Actually, you know what the word there is in the Greek? It's heresies. It's having uh, two two parties entrenched on one side against another. Because that's what a heresy is. is being entrenched against God in truth. Envying. That's being spiteful or having ill will for others. I always, I always distinguish envy with jealousy this way. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Envy is wanting something bad to, ha- to happen to someone else. It's always in relationship, but it's you either want what they have, or you want them to have something worse than what they have. Does that make sense? Drunkenness, intoxication. The word there is methane, meth. Uh, is the. Now, it's not the same as, we don't get our methamphetamines word from that or anything like that, but... Um, It's easy to remember that way. And then orgies. Or other translations say carousing. Nalmas is the word here. And it it just means letting loose. It's used to to denote people who, who in their drunken stupors go to party after party after party. And it just gets more and more crazy. And I think of Mardi Gras. I mean just people get out of control and do crazy, stupid things in their drunken stupor. Those are the deeds of the flesh. Now, is that an exhaustive list? Absolutely not. We could think of many things. Those probably include most everything that we could think of. And and there's nothing you're like, well, Brian, why did you talk about that? Because it's obvious. Absolutely it's obvious. That's Paul's point here. It's obvious. We don't have to sit around and go now, is this sin? Should I do this? What's What's wrong and what's right? What's good and what's bad? How far is too far? We don't have to ask those questions. God's word spells it out for us. And we know anyway. By our consciences, we know right and wrong. It's being willing to act on what we know. That's the deeds of the, the flesh. Quickly, the fruit of the spirit is now revealed by Paul in verses 22 23. And he uses this simple contraction here in verse 22. What's the word? I'm I'm sorry, conjunction, not contraction, conjunction. Remember conjunction, junction? What's the conjunction that he uses there in verse 22? But. I was preaching a sermon once and it said, um, um, in in Ephesians chapter 2, that's where it was. I was trying to think where it was. He's talking about how we're... We're far away. We're at enmity with God. But now, through the blood of Christ, we've been brought near by his mercies. And and I said, but God in Christ has brought us near. But God, who is rich in mercy. And I said, what a big but that is. And then I realized what I'd said. (laughs) Um, But this is a big but here. But... In contrast to, on the other hand, on the other side, completely opposite to, remember? They're completely opposite. They're polar opposites. But the fruit of the Spirit is this. Now, I want you to see this very quick. He talks about the deeds of the flesh. That's got an S on the end. That means what? Plural. This does not have an S. The fruit. And if you go to the Greek, it's a singular word. Did Paul mess up? Did he make a mistake? No way. He intended this to be singular. Why? I think for two reasons. One, they're all the fruit. You're either doing the fruit of the Spirit or you're not. But I think the biggest reason why he did this is deeds are independent. They act independently. And we're over here doing this and we're over here doing this. But if you have the Spirit... How much of the Spirit do you have? All of them. 100%. Now, He may not be working through you completely. There may be something in your life that that He won't work until you get that out of your life. But you have all of the Spirit. And if the Spirit is the one that does these things, because these are not of you, these are of the Spirit. They're not of your flesh, of you, they're of the Holy Spirit. If you have the Spirit, how many of these do you have? All of them, right? And so they are the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. All of them together. And what are they? Love. Agape. Pure, unconditional love. Joy. Peace. That, that means to be at rest. Patience. Long-suffering. Not quick-tempered. Compared to, remember above, there was tempered. You got angry easily. You go from zero to 100 like that. This is a wisdom and patience and knowing I don't have to get emotionally charged at everything that happens in my life. Kindness. That means moral or useful. Goodness. Virtue. Benevolent. Faithfulness. Faith. Trust. Reliance upon. Gentleness. That means humility or meekness. Self-control. Temperance. Inner strength. Control over your actions and your thoughts. These are the fruit of the Spirit. And what does Paul say against such things? There is no law. I think he's using a play on words there. Not only is he saying, listen, there's there's nothing against these things. There's no law against these. There's nobody saying you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. These are all really good things. Every, everybody would agree these are good things. But I think he's going back to his argument of the Spirit versus the law, And he says, in doing these things, because you're living by the Spirit, you have fulfilled the law, the heart of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In doing those things, you fulfill the law. Because that is the heart of the law, to love God and to love others. And when you live out the fruit of the Spirit, it is the manifestation of love in your life for God and for others. And you fulfill the law. And then in conclusion, verse 25, if you live by the Spirit, you will walk. Or if you live by the Spirit, then walk by the Spirit. And it's it's a rhetorical statement. And it's used all the time in communication. Well, if you're a man, then act like a man. If you're confident, then do it. If you know the answer, then why'd you do it wrong? And he's not asking whether they have life by the Spirit or not. He's not saying, well, if you have the Spirit. He's writing to believers. He's assuming that they do have the Spirit. The assumption is that you do have the Spirit. He is in you, living and active. So why in the world are you not walking by the Spirit? You have everything for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Why in the world are you not making the most of it. You're forgiven. You share in the inheritance of Christ. God's power rests in you. Why are you failing all the time? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you're failing all the time. Please don't hear that. But that's what Paul's asking. Why do you keep blowing it? Why do you keep messing up? There's no excuse. There's no reason. Because if we walk by the Spirit, what do we say at the very beginning? You will overcome sin. And so since you have it, why don't you just go ahead and walk by him? Things will be so much better, so much easier. People will like you more, I promise you that. Now, the world may not, but in general, people are going to like you because you're going to be about them. You're going to put them first. You're going to love them and be kind to them. You're going to be a happy person who likes to be around sad, gripey, grumpy people. And so the application is so simple because Paul says it in one verse, verse 25, if you live by the Spirit, if you're a believer, if you have Christ in your life and therefore the Holy Spirit in your life, then why don't you just go ahead and walk by the Spirit? Save us all a lot of trouble and just do it. I remember uh, as a young boy one morning, I Got up, I was in grade school, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but I got up and I went in the kitchen, and a few weeks before that, my mom had gotten some apple cider from the local orchard. And there the cider was on the counter, I thought, oh great, I'll have a a glass of that. And I just assumed that my mom or my dad had left it out, because they had got a glass that morning and forgot to put it back in the fridge. So I poured myself a big old glass, and I took a big old gulp, and everywhere, it had fermented. It was sour. It was sour nasty. It did not taste good. That's how sin is, friends. It sits on the counter and it says, look at me. Drink me. I'll satisfy you. i will be good. You'll like it. In this case, it was immediately not good. But whether it's the first drink or at some point into the glass of drinking, the true nature of sin will reveal itself and it will be sour. And, and I, I just ask you today that if you're drinking right now, if you're drinking in the, of that glass in your life, maybe it's good now, but it won't be that way forever. And, and I would plead with you to stop drinking before it's too late. And I'm telling you, You could be doing everything good in your life. You could be a moral person. You could be nice to your neighbors. You could give money to the church. You could be sitting here today. You could be doing all the right things. You're a good employee. You work hard. You provide for your family. But if you don't know Jesus, if you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, then you are drinking that cup even today. And my friends, as hard as you work, As hard as you try, God will not be pleased. He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Unless, unless you give up trying that way. Stop living under the law. Stop trying to work hard. Stop thinking you can do it your way. And simply come to Christ. Accept his right standing with the Father. Trust in his goodness, in his perfection. Rest on his sufficiency and his never-ending love.